0: We are talking about trucks hitting overpasses. Uh, One happened this morning. Ties up the traffic, snarls it, costs us all money in trying to rebuild overpasses. What is going on? Let's find out from somebody who's uh, very uh, knowledgeable on the subject matter. He is the president and CEO of BC's Trucking Association. Dave Earle is on the line. Dave, good to have you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. Is it our imagination or is this happening more often?
1: You know, I don't have stats over time, Jody, but simply put, one of these is too much. They're happening too often. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter how often, um, it's too often. There are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of moves every day that happen safely. So the question is for us is why is it a handful of these keep happening?
0: and we're seeing like the one that went super viral was that dump truck that was clearly still raised and people had video of it you know literal Mm -hmm. watching the car accident in slow motion as it hit how does that happen like where where are the checks and balances here or is that an issue with some companies on,
1: uh, on that one jody i really don't know um because that's extraordinary and i mean you see those, they're viral. They do happen around the continent and around the world from time to time. Um, but it's the ones that, that are happening where loads are higher than they should be. They're on, they're secured, they've done the work that way, but they haven't taken the time to measure. The driver hasn't mm. measured. The customer hasn't said, hey, you know, how high is this? Where are we going? Like, the conversations that need to happen before those loads need to start to move just aren't
0: happening. Can you walk us through what that looks like when, because clearly you said everything we touch, everything that's around all of us listening right now, all of us, everything was trucked at some point, somewhere. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's
1: a, yeah. And what we're talking about with these ones, Jody, these are the, the odd moves. These aren't your standard trailers that are all built to a standard height where we put boxes right. and things in them. These are the, the odd sizes. These are the ones that are unreducible, the really, really big loads. And I mean, we've seen absolutely immense loads move on highways, and you and I won't see that work. It happens at night in British Columbia, and there's pilot cars, and there's movements. It's all planned. Right. It's very, very technical. But then we get down into moves where you're a little bit higher. Um, The rules haven't changed. Uh, When you're over 4.15 metres in height, and it's the same right across the continent, you have to contact the ministry responsible and say, hey, I have an oversized load, where do I go? And every province is a little different in terms of their process of getting a permit. But in BC, you make a phone call and you say, this is where I'm going, this is what's happening. What route do I take? Um, right. To be fair, the route in the Fraser Valley is, is a really big detour. It's not that you can hop off and hop back on. You have to get off at 176th and then meander your way down through Langley Township and Abbotsford and rejoin out past Whatcom. It's a big detour because of the infrastructure. But that doesn't matter. Um, that detour has to be made. We can't have these overpass hits
0: right dave earl is bc trucking association president and ceo and dave i'm so glad to be able to bend your ear here because what you just said makes all kinds of sense like that's a big meander it's going to take time it's a big detour but boy when you're looking at the at the images of this morning on highway one in the eastern eastern fraser valley uh that trucker got a greater delay today in hitting that overpass and catching fire <laughs> you know, it's like
1: yeah and and well i mean the 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 poor the the, the driver at highway three um, that wasn't an overheight hit. That driver, I'm very, very thankful, uh, is alive. Um, my understanding is there was a mechanical failure. Um, it wasn't an overheight issue. He was running a dump truck really? and had a mechanical failure. Yep. Um, it, that's Abbotsford Police uh, providing that information. And I don't have enough details, but to say that wasn't an overheight issue, I'm just thankful he's okay. Um, Good to know. The, the other one, yeah, the other one at 264th was a height issue. Apparently, again, I, you know, I haven't been there, of course. Um, right, right. But those are the ones that we find very frustrating. It's frustrating for traffic stuck, stuck in traffic. It's frustrating for other truck drivers stuck. Um, you know, and mm. it's, it's something that, that just vexes us uh, when we think about these things, saying, you know, they're preventable. We have to take the time.
2: We have
0: to take the time to check go over again what the standard height is just so we can all get that in our minds because more and more of us have Mm -hmm. those storage things that we would put on our roof rack of our suv or our car or whatever we're traveling somewhere we're headed up to whistler we're putting our you know snowboard in there or we're going camping and it all goes into the roof rack and then you drive into the underground parking lot and we're like oh (laughs) forgot about the roof rack right
1: whoops yeah and for a and for a professional driver that is securing equipment that 4.15 meter rule hasn't changed And it's literally just as as simple as measuring and taking the time and saying, how high is that load? Um, All of the overpasses, you'll see the yellow signs. They have different signs on there indicating what height they are. Um, But the biggest thing is once you measure and you pull the permit from the BC's Permit Centre, you get a routing and it tells you, go here, turn right here, don't go here. Um, And you follow the directions. You have to have an honest conversation with your customer to say, look, I can't get it there by this time because we have overheight restrictions and the customer has to be able to accept that and not say, yeah. I don't care, just get it there. There's a conversation that needs to happen that obviously isn't happening.
0: Is there a training piece of this puzzle, you know, in, in terms of, uh certification because it feels as you said one's too many so let's put it there Mm -hmm. most truckers are incredibly responsible and very very important obviously essential but there are some perhaps cost-cutting measures or under um under resourced or trained that are that are leading to some of these situations where trucks strike overpasses in bc maybe it's the not knowing i guess i'm asking is that what are the consequences when that happens
1: is yeah, there a i don 't yeah and i don 't know um, you know if we 're talking about a not knowing or a not understanding or an evaluation or, or what 's happening, I do know since two thousand and twenty one we have standardized mandatory entry level training in b c and uh, we 've had it right good. across the country since then and that 's good. The question becomes, is what do we do for drivers that have had their licenses for a long time and have done things and have been like, yeah, that's close enough, and then all of a sudden close enough isn't? Is that part of the problem? Uh, Is it complacency? Like, you know, there's there's lots of solutions, Jody. The Mm -hmm. enforcement element of it, that's not the be-all and the end-all. These are insurance claims. You know, and they're big ones. And so when you're looking at operating a commercial license, um, you're looking at increased premiums. And particularly uh, if you're running with private insurance uh, in in another jurisdiction, for example, uh, you may have a devil of a time getting insurance after one of these strikes. Um, So the consequences go way, way beyond penalty points and driver's license suspensions and fines. Um, These are issues that can lead to real huge problems for drivers and carriers ongoing. So there's huge consequences. And I am am consistently mystified why these conversations aren't happening at the front end.
0: Right. It is one of those things that it's a bit of a head scratcher in that. So if somebody is... responsible bc drivers or truckers that are out there and they see something that clearly is uh an accident ready to happen perhaps is there a reportable place for that what would you say to someone if they're like "I'm, i'm seeing this dump truck drive down the road and it's gonna hit the overpass you know two miles from here i can see it coming down the pack what what would the actionable thing be to do
1: no, that's a 911 call, Jody, and the, the, Straight the difficulty up. with great right up. I mean, if you're seeing that happen, you know what's yep. going to happen, and I do understand in some of those circumstances, individuals will honk and do things and try and get the driver's attention that something's happening yep. in behind that they may not, may not be aware of. Um, you know, and that's certainly a call. But, boy, I mean, unless we're awfully lucky and there happens to be law enforcement in the area immediately, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to watch. I mean, And, and that's why the videos yeah. that you see um, are out there.
0: That is so scary. Dave, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for uh, the information, and as you said, more people need to be talking about this. Glad that we had an opportunity to do so here.
1: Absolutely, Jody, and thanks for having me.
0: My good friend and uh, Unspun Podcast partner, our our political podcast, unspunpodcast.com, is where you find myself and former Vancouver City Councillor and also fill-in host here on CKNW, George Affleck is on the line. Hello, George.
3: Hey, Jody.
0: Hello. Good to chat with you, as always. We've got a bunch of stuff to unpack over the next few yeah. minutes. Let's start with this controversial building downtown in Chinatown. The Kiefer going to council for approval tonight. Can you lay the, lay the land for people who maybe are, are unaware of the history around this? Because you, you well, were voting on this when you were a council.
3: Oh, my God. I can't believe it. It's back. It's back. I mean, it was very frustrating for the, the developer, uh, BD. He, they This came to council in 2017. We as a council passed it after much controversy back then when I was on council, um, and uh, a lot of pressure on us from various uh, vocal groups about uh, allowing this development, which was in the heart of Chinatown. Um, It's a multi-use kind of building. It's got a community center, it's got housing, it's got everything you'd think you'd need, you'd think you'd get support, but it it, it has mixed uh, responses. Um, as a result, we, we approved it, though. And strangely, it went to the development permit board back then, and they turned it down by one vote. Uh, at that time, the city engineer decided he had the, he had the voting ballots, and he voted against it. And nobody knows quite why he took the pressure. Generally, development permit boards aren't meant to be get involved in the politics. They're meant to just look at the actual design and structure and go, okay, well, council said, yeah, so we just got to make sure it you know, follows the regulations. But they turned it down and so five years what six years later almost um it's come back i guess the developer didn't bother with the last council because of the chaos there uh he's it's brought it back now it's going to the development permit board this afternoon at three o'clock my bet is it'll get approved there's a new uh there's a new chief engineer now uh probably likely to support it uh so i would say it will get support and it will uh move forward finally
0: was the pushback on this building rooted in um, the want to not see gentrification in Chinatown?
3: Yeah, well, you know, it's a very very controversial area. You've got downtown east side. You've got all that kind of issue. You've got Chinatown. You've got a really divided community in Chinatown. Um, you've got yeah. the downtown east side plan, which doesn't really allow for a lot of kind of density. It's a very bizarre plan. And the Chinatown has its own challenges it's it it actually you know that's why why we permitted it because it met it checked a lot of positive boxes uh in order to infuse uh, a real positive change for Chinatown um back then and uh you know i think it's a good project it meets a lot of needs of the community and will really uh help Chinatown for the long term
0: so was there also a footprint issue with this? And I ask completely, honestly, I don't know the answer. There was something about, was it was too big for the space? It hung over too much? Am I thinking about the, the same, or was it the height that, that had people yeah, concerned? It's
3: slightly lower, yeah, it's slightly lower this time uh, the, than it was the previous time. Um, yeah, I think it's related to the, um, the area and that it's quite a, it's, it's sort of a lower Chinatown. Um, and you have wow. a cenotaph there uh, and you have a few other cultural uh, is, you know, stuff. But, it, it, you know, I, we didn't see that as a council at the time. We didn't see the challenge that we were hearing. Generally, uh, for that neighborhood, especially the downtown east side advocates who are very, very vocal, um, no change. They don't want any change. Everything that gets built has to be 100% so social housing for core need people. Right. Um, and in this case, it just didn't make sense for us. I thought, well, this is for Chinatown, not not the downtown east side necessarily um, but did meet it had social housing in it and a community center so it really so a community uh, center a lot of positive things.
0: Mm-hmm. right so yeah. community center social housing all of the uh, those pieces of it um wanting to bring back i mean that what appears to be what mayor ken sims goal is with regard to revitalizing chinatown in, in terms of the yeah. lessening the parking costs and trying to get more people to visit there to go there to live there and shop there
3: Yeah, well, there's multi-millions of dollars being infused into Chinatown um, from the federal government, provincial government, the city. Um, There's always the argument about the disnification of Chinatown that uh, comes up when you start trying to protect a neighborhood that maybe has run its course. Uh, That argument obviously is being made for many, many years. Um, So you have to be uh, thoughtful in how you develop and how you change the community in order to keep its historical context while also making uh, sure it can survive in today's uh, retail uh, office and residential environment.
0: Right. Uh, you said, you know, arguing, arguments. Um, speaking mm-hmm. of fighting, <laughs> <a> park board. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I did there? Um, oh, nice. The park board slow to, I guess, fix what frustrates many people wanting to visit Stanley Park. Um, more pictures this weekend of people stuck in the traffic. Some people on, on the long weekend, it took two hours to, to get out of the park. Like everybody just stuck idling. How, it, is this going to get fixed?
3: Well, I, you know, even the best of times when, when Stanley Park was had no bike lane, cutting it in half, during the summer, it was always a bit tough getting around there in a car. Uh, you know, it, get, it would get backed up. I remember that pre-bike lane. Um, but, yep. uh, you know, the bike lanes being removed... Slowly. It's a, you know, the previous park board really created a bit of a, a hatchet job as far as design, uh, not to mention costs, uh, and, you know, left this current commission, park board commission, to kind of figure this, you know, this mess out. And it's costing taxpayers, of course, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to remove uh, a, a bike lane that was never properly designed. Uh, by, uh, you, know, engin- you know, engineers that should have been designing. that was designed by a bunch of politicians by the looks of it. And uh, that's never good. They never let politicians design things. That's for sure. That's not their job. That's not their job.
0: No. It's frustrating, uh, to say the least. Uh, Kids Pool is opening this week. There was a time where oh, we were oh. told it was not going to open this year at all. It is opening this week. Um, we f- were hoping that it was going back to pre-COVID. Uh, but still requiring online registration to go to a public outdoor pool. Why, George, what can we do about this?
3: Well, of course, it's a very popular pool. Um, and I guess there could be an argument made that they're doing that because, you know, they don't want lineups out, out the side. And so it gives everybody a chance to use it. That's the skin I would probably see on it currently. It certainly isn't COVID related. Um, but, you know, what is the deal with this? I mean, first of all, why is Kit's Pool not open from February to november frankly i mean you know yeah. you can swim outside pretty much all year round in this spot people are willing to swim in pretty cool you can look out in the ocean and people are swimming up there uh, yeah, yeah uh, it's a beautiful pool it's it can be easily even not heated that much um, i don't understand you know the this is again the hangover of the previous park board i think that didn't was incompetent at so many levels pretty several park boards i think over the last 15 years, uh, for the most part, dominated first by Vision, uh, and then last term by the Green Cope Alliance. Uh, you know, I think that we're really challenged by the mess that they've created over those years uh, and to fix everything uh, because they spent so much time doing things that were not their job uh, that, uh, as a result, they don't have any funds left, money, to actually do things to get them to the level they need to. You can't do everything at once. But I would say that that pool should be a priority. And please, can we not have it open longer than just the May-long weekend, to Labor Day-long weekend? It's ridiculous. I mean, that's not even... Vancouver summer starts in March and ends in mid-October, minimum.
0: Just a couple of minutes here to touch on what you see happening with regard to law enforcement in Surrey. You went on vacation to Italy for three weeks and came back, and still it's not sorted.
3: (laughs) I think before I left, they had uh, made the offer. The province had certainly leaned... Uh, heavily towards uh, Surrey police as a a choice. Uh, They've put some cash uh, out there. But for some reason, it's a bit of a mystery to me uh, why the mayor, Mayor Locke, is playing hardball or unwilling to even do this. It's just so committed and so, um, uh, I think, just stubborn about uh, not going with this and sticking with the current uh, RCMP. Either this is a play for more cash or she is simply just being stubborn. It's very confusing, but I I'm, my bet is on she wants more money from the province uh, in order to justify the massive cost this is going to have on the taxpayers of Surrey.
0: Some would say like the eye-bulging number of a quarter of a billion dollars almost on the table from the provincial government uh, would be something you'd be, yes, thank you, as opposed to, mm-hmm. please, sir, may I have some more? Um, how much more yeah. would it take? But, uh-
3: <laughs> well, I'm sure Brenda Locke, Mayor Locke, has looked at Vancouver's policing budget and said, oh, hmm, we're going to go from, you know, whatever, 20% to 40%, which is Vancouver's budget, you know, around 40% of our operating budget in Vancouver. This is, you know, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. There doesn't seem to be any end to it. There doesn't seem to be any willingness by the police to find ways to be res- have any restraint on their spending. Of course, people want crime to be solved. They don't want crime in our city. Uh, but at what cost are we as taxpayers in Vancouver willing to go? And at this point, it seems endless. Uh, and so I'm thinking that Brenda Lott's going, um, I'm gonna, if we're going to head towards 40% of our budget in Surrey, as we grow to become the largest community in, in the region, in, in, in British Columbia by 2040, um, I got to think about the ta- taxpayers of the city and that cost. Um, and she should be thinking about that cost. It will be the biggest line item uh, in Surrey's budget by a long shot. And it's just going to get worse and higher and higher as a percentage of that budget as Surrey grows uh, and as it is a much larger community than Vancouver, uh, much harder to police um, and major growing pains. And so it's going to be a big cost, the taxpayers of Surrey for the future will have to t- burden have all that cost on their on their on their shoulders. And it's going to be very very expensive for them. And that's a fact that they have to live with.
0: So ten seconds or less, because we're up against the clock here. should this decision be forced to be made by a deadline of some sort in your opinion
3: well we have to get conclusion on this i mean i think she's heading into her first year in in office um i would say that the premier seems to be dancing around this they're doing the math on their potential call for an election this in the province this year they're thinking about those votes in surrey they got to make a decision about that i think the i think the province will not double down but they're going to give more cash and to get those votes
0: all right, thank you, George Affleck. As always, we'll talk to you on Thursday on Unspun Podcast, pal. Thank you, uh, Mario Canseco. Joining us now, the president of Research Co. Mario, thank you for joining us today on the show.
4: My pleasure, Jody. Great to be here with you.
0: I want to talk about your latest uh, Research Co. polling about noise, city noise across Canada. These are some big numbers you're delivering.
4: It's big. We've been tracking this for the past three years, and for the first time, we have a majority of Canadians, 54%, who believe their city or town has become noisier over the past year. This started as a pandemic exercise. How are people feeling about being in their homes all day, being confined to a specific space, working from there, trying to connect to the office? And we expected the situation to be a little bit better over the past couple of years, but it has uh, significantly gotten worse, particularly in Ontario, in Alberta, and in British Columbia.
0: What do you think is at the root of this? Because uh, when I was reading over um, your research, in my mind, I'm more sensitive to noise now than I was pre-pandemic because it got so quiet.
4: Yes, that is definitely that, that's part a... of it. Yeah. So it's not just incredibly well, noisy, noisy, that noisy, that right? Quite striking is uh, there's a generational difference. Uh, the 18 to 34-year-old Canadian is more likely to be taking action. Let's say you know, you're know you finally out of the house. You find a place where you're renting, where you're living, and it's noisy. You're trying to work from home, and, and you just can't get things done. Uh, We see the 18 to 34-year-old crowd uh, significantly more likely to be doing something about it. Are you getting some earplugs or earmuffs? Are you uh, buying some special uh, hardware that can let you use a headphone that is noise-canceling? That type of thing is happening more with the younger generation. So it's also a question of just how much we got used to the silence of the pandemic and now how everything seems very, very different uh, now that everybody's back doing the things that they used to do.
0: Right, I duck when I hear a, a plane going overhead because it got so quiet for so long and now it's like what is that? Oh, it's it's hello, it's the regular flight that flies over this part of town at the same time every day I want to talk about also how it feels this is probably gonna have people screaming at the radio in agreement with me So I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out there nothing makes me crazier than the neighbor who wants to pressure wash for four days straight <laughs> over the weekend like the, the have we lost the plot when it comes to a scrub brush and a hose or a rake over my husband loves a leaf blower it makes me a little crazy too
4: you know, that is one of the major nuisances that we have. Uh 20% of Canadians saying yard work, lawn mowers, leaf blowers is something that they've noticed over the past year. Uh the number one issue is unnecessary noise from vehicles. Uh motorcycles and mm-hmm. cars revving up. say that they've been exposed to this type of noise. We can add honking the horn excessively to that at 21%. It climbs to 27% in Ontario. So I don't know if they're communicating that way now because it's significantly (laughs) higher than the national average. But when you look at these two issues, uh, these are our own decisions. You know, there's no need for somebody to be revving up the motorcycle or the car. There's no need for somebody to honk the horn excessively unless you're stopping somebody from crashing into somebody else. So it's part of this. It's our own decisions. You know, be mindful of your surroundings. Uh, you may want to do some yard work at 7 a.m., but it might not be best to do that on a Sunday when everybody else in your neighborhood is asleep.
0: Right. There's that little piece of community at it. Or if you take uh, BC Ferries often, the car alarm is also one. I mean, yes. those are Those are bothersome, at least. But also... I, I probably am guilty of doing this. People that walk with their headphones and are having a conversation on their phone loudly, or perhaps out for their hike or their walk around the neighborhood and just, just talking about what they're doing at the top of their lungs.
4: Well, I think that is also one of the side effects of the pandemic. You know, we got used to doing a lot of stuff with nobody watching. And now we're mm-hmm. continuing to do something like that. People at the supermarket yelling at the phone to figure out what type of milk they should be buying. It's a little bit different than it <laughs> used to be back in 2019. The other thing that is, has changed dramatically Uh, is um, how many people complain about dogs barking. And this has a lot to do with pandemic puppies. You know, you bring somebody, you're bored at home, bring in a nice little dog. Now you have to go out to work, so the dog is going to be alone for a while. And that has become one of the things where we're seeing some positive momentum or negative momentum, if you want to look at it that way. It was 27% last year. Now it's 30% this year. So dogs barking... It's the second nuisance after uh, unnecessary noise from vehicles across the country.
0: We're talking about noisy cities. Canadians feeling their cities are noisier over these last couple of years. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. You can go to researchco.ca. Was there one thing here that surprised you most, Mario? I love asking you this when you're polling.
4: Yes, uh, I knew that was coming. Uh, One thing that was quite surprising was fireworks. We complain about this so much. Oh, it's affecting my dog. Oh, it's making my baby wake up. Oh, it's just a nuisance. It's terrible. It's bad for the environment. We only had 20% of Canadians who said they were bothered by fireworks. And it's interesting Uh because we're heading into a season where you usually have Canada Day celebrations. It's not something that people are noticing as as, as often. Uh, more than anything, I think we're noticing the things that bother us when we're at home on from nine to five. And this is why we have so many instances of people who say uh, I'm more concerned and more bothered by a motorcycle revving up than by fireworks on Halloween night.
0: Yeah, interesting, hey? Fewer Canadians, though, uh, saying that they're calling the cops over noise.
4: Yes, that was interesting too. Uh, It's a generational thing as well. You know, we have 9% of Canadians who have reported noise concerns to the police. It's complicated to do, of course, and by the time they they show up, maybe there's no noise happening, so it becomes more complicated. We have 6% who said they moved away from their previous home because of noise. This climbs to 10%. Among the 18 to 34-year-olds, it may sound like a small number, but it's one out of every 10 young Canadians who said, I can't live here anymore because it's just yeah. too noisy.
0: That is a bigger number than it appears on the sheet for sure. Because that's like moving your house because it's just too much. It's interesting. We have to all be a, a little mindful about uh, how noisy we might be. As we move about our day, I think the pandemic has changed our ability to sort of gauge how we might impact others because we were go home, stay home, and stand so tight for for so long. It's fascinating stuff, Mario. Thank you for this. My pleasure, anytime. We've all been watching with a keen eye as the political uh, play has been just absolutely devouring the news cycle about the. The, the foreboding nature of a, of a debt crisis, defaulting on the debt in the United States, just a showdown between political parties uh, unfolding. One of the topics we want to speak with, with our global news, Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini, who joins me on the line. Thanks for joining us, Reggie. Appreciate it. Good afternoon. What's happening with, uh, I almost said Donald Trump, with President Joe Biden and Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy? Have they come to an agreement?
5: Yeah, so over the weekend, uh, an agreement was reached, an agreement in principle, uh, where both sides uh, managed to give in enough get enough that they were able to get, you know, 99 pages worth of legislation written uh, in an attempt to avoid a default. Uh, but it's just one hurdle clear here, Jody, and that's because this still has to go to the Rules Committee. And if it gets out of the Rules Committee, this still has to go to the floor of the House for a vote, and then it has to go for a Senate. And what does that mean? Well, it means that there is still days that need to go by, and the more days go by, the closer the U.S. gets to that debt default X date, which is now believed to be June 5th. But ultimately, again, the agreement in principle is one thing. Clearing the rules is going to be a completely different thing because there are differing views on how both parties are looking at this bill.
0: Right. So what has the reaction been? Because, I mean, both, both Republicans and Democrats need every vote they can to make this happen. I mean, everything in the U.S. seems to be sitting pivoted on this very pointy 50-50 situation. Um, so within each party, there, there has to be consensus as well.
5: Yeah, and, and there's not. Uh, I mean, if we start with Republicans, there is already anger that they believe that while this bill in their eyes, uh, doesn't give Democrats any wins, they also believe that this bill doesn't do enough to claw back on some of the spending or some of the, what they believe to be extraneous spending is. Uh, and there are members of the hardline Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party that are not happy about this and, when I said it might not, you're, it might have a, a difficult time clearing the Rules Committee. That's because half of the Republicans on that committee come from the Freedom Caucus, and typically, historically, the opposing party on Rules will always just vote something down because they don't want it to go to the House floor. Might be different this time mm-hmm. because it's a debt ceiling, but there may not even be enough Republicans in the Rules Committee that are happy with what this bill is going to do. That's why we say we don't know if and when this is going to wind up on the House floor. Flip side. Uh, The president's team, the White House, actively trying to whip Democrats to say, look, we had to give up some things. We didn't have to give up the whole house here. Uh, And ultimately, giving up a little bit is better than going into a default.
0: It's been really something to watch in terms of just the how many times over the last number of years, Reggie, have the words unprecedented come out of your mouth. So even going into something that feels like political theater, when we're talking about defaulting. Uh, the US economy, basically, um, and what that might mean. Typically, it is a lot of theater. Like you said, you just vote it down. And that's, that's how, how it works. And then you, you fight back and forth. And we had heard Joe Biden say, I'm not negotiating here. And yet he had to, uh, at the end of the day. Was that expected, unexpected?
5: Sure. I mean, look, the president said that he wasn't going to negotiate, uh, but ultimately he knows that governing and uh, and good governance in a democracy means that there is always going to be give and take but it is especially true when you are governing as president in a split government where you have 50 of uh of of the chambers controlled by the opposing party it is always going to be uh, a game of you give some i give some and then ultimately who blinks first democrats look they they did get losses in this they they are going to have to deal with Uh, work requirements around things like people who, who may be trying to access or keep accessibility to things like food stamps or family assistance. Uh, but ultimately they are also going to tell the voters, look, we had to give up a little bit, but it's better than the American people bearing on their shoulders the burden of, uh, a full government default, which has never happened before, and well, it would be a politically, um, you know, kind of almost a death bullet to the president. It would also be the same thing to the Republican Party, and both parties know just how catastrophic this would have been, regardless of the bluster that was coming out of some Republicans' mouth that this simply didn't matter.
0: Whereas Reggie Chikini, Global News Washington correspondent? Reggie, what what is at the crux of uh, um, the debt? The, the debt ceiling being hit what would have tumbled first or what would it, the like what it, does it start with the military or does it start with social assistance is it social security like what, was- what are the pieces that would
5: Combination of of a bunch of things. And look, realistically, in all all truth here, the United States hit the debt ceiling in uh, in the middle or towards the end of January, and they've been using what's known as extraordinary measures, essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul within government programs in order to uh, make sure money is there. By June 5th, uh, the Treasury Secretary has said, look, the money coming in from revenues, from quarterly payments, from taxes, that's not going to cover what's going out. So the first things to be felt uh, would be soldiers' salaries. Uh, Social security checks would start to dry up almost immediately. And as the days go by, within the first two, three, four, five days, uh, Medicare payments would stop being made. Hospitals would start losing funding. And within a week, schools would start to lose funding. And then within 14 days, uh, there's a risk that, the debt wouldn't be able to be paid. Creditors would be coming forward, and the United States simply wouldn't have the money. The The kind of good news in all of this is, if they can get this passed, the default is likely not going to happen, and a part of the compromise was that for the next two years, there will be no fight over the debt ceiling because it, it, it will just be raised uh, for the next kind of two cycles, and that becomes pivotal, especially in an election year, because Republicans won't be able to kind of hold this hostage again uh, and force right. a negotiation months before the election.
0: Wow, there's so much there. But as it is right now, things are looking much more positive than they did perhaps a week ago. So you know as we as I mentioned the unprecedented nature of what we've seen happen over these last number of years, um, you, you know, it's hard to lean in on. It's never happened before. <laughs>
5: Yeah. And I mean, look, look, sure, it's 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 we've come close. In 2011, the U.S. did come close to a default and it took a credit rating hit because of that. And that was a real threat again this year. But again, markets have been so unpredictable, especially in the wake of and in the years now post pandemic and with inflation still incredibly high. There was some real concerns here that it would flip the U.S. into a into a recession. And what happens at that point, Jody? Well, the world reacts, and then you wind up the risk of Canada watching its markets drop. You wind up the risk of Canada being thrown into a kind of recession that's tied to the United States recession. So it's an issue that has a huge domestic impact, but the ramifications ripple way outside of the U.S. borders, and there wouldn't really be a country around the world that wouldn't be impacted by a debt default right. from the United States.
6: After the 2020 election and the attack of January 6th, My fellow Republicans wanted me to lie. They wanted me to say that the 2020 election was stolen, that the attack of January 6th wasn't a big deal, and that Donald Trump wasn't dangerous. I had to choose between lying and losing my position in House leadership. As I spoke to my colleagues on my last morning as chair of the Republican conference in May of 2021, I told them that if they wanted a leader who would lie, they should choose someone else
0: that is the unmistakable voice of u.s representative liz cheney as she delivered a commencement address at a colorado college yesterday um r- repeating her fierce criticism of former president uh, donald trump and the big lie that continues to perpetuate the united states i thought that was a pretty poignant piece as we continue our discussion with reggie cicchini global news washington correspondent uh, more with Donald Trump, uh, he was very active on social media today in his all caps way. Is it it's Truth Social that he is on, right?
5: Uh, it is, yeah. And I mean, look, his his Truth Social today, uh, you know, in an attempt to mark, commemorate, celebrate Memorial Day, uh, became just a, a an attack on you know what he sees as the people who are actively trying to bring down the country. Um, and, you know, we've seen this before in previous posts on previous days of of kind of marking uh, significant moments in American history. He attempts to make it about himself. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, his words were simply just words. And ultimately, uh, it was the words of the president today laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier that 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 meant far more to the country uh, as they marked the day.
0: One would hope that that would be true as as This is such a a day of reflection for those in the United States, uh, definitely, um, and and the the narcissistic nature of what that uh, social media post was. It was rather a word salad, I might say. <laughs> Trying to perhaps uh, hold at bay the, the pressure that he's feeling, maybe walls closing in a little bit with regard to some of the, the legal issues that Donald Trump uh, continues to suffer and see coming down the pipe, and the, the movement of some documents. There, that was some new news in the last week or so, uh, those Mar-a-Lago documents being moved before the FBI raid.
5: Yeah, before it was some, it was bombshell reporting by, uh, by the Washington Post eventually picked up by a couple of other outlets down here. Um, and, and again, it, it, it speaks to what could potentially be, uh, alternative or new or other motives by the former president when it came to, uh, the documents that were in his house. And look, I spoke with a former um, deputy assistant attorney general from the Bush administration a couple of days ago, right after all this news uh, came out. And he said, look, uh, if the if the uh, special counsel, Jack Smith, is able to eventually bring charges forward. Um, it's likely going to be done under willful negligence here. And he went back to say, you know, everybody is talking about the fact that Biden had uh, documents uh, or the fact that Hillary Clinton, you know, erased her her servers. Uh, and he made the point of saying, look, when Hillary Clinton uh, was accused of all of that, it was considered gross negligence. But for the former president to be actively moving things around to essentially subvert the government and go against a subpoena that's why he said that this would be considered willful negligence and that could potentially become problematic as the walls start to close in on the former president and we potentially get close to what could be an indictment or some form of charge in this case
0: and what are we seeing happen in georgia with president donald trump from a legal perspective
5: well, I mean, the, it, within uh, the end of July, the first couple of weeks of August, we've heard uh, that the prosecutor from Fulton County, Fannie Willis, will uh, also be in a position of potentially moving forward on indictments. And this has to do with the uh, attempts to overturn the 2020 election. And it ties in people like Donald Trump and like Lindsey Graham, who played active roles here. If everyone remembers that phone call Trump had where he was asking for 11,000 and change votes that would essentially tip it in his favor uh there could be uh, obstruction charges here and and uh, election interference charges that are ultimately brought against a former president a former president who is already indicted a precedent has been set at this point but to have uh this prosecutor and the special counsel potentially closing in at almost a simultaneous clip here this could have a huge impact not just on Donald Trump's electability but on the campaign itself because does that suck the oxygen out and force other candidates to then have to talk about Donald Trump to make themselves different than him or does he use this to his political advantage
0: yeah because half of the country would look at that as as always a martyr um January 6th sentencing I've only got a minute left here um but the January 6th sentencing of the head of the Oath Keepers massive massive jail sentence for him
5: Longest jail sentence that's been handed out, uh, so far, 16 or 18 years of the, you know, more than thousand cases that have been prosecuted. Worth remembering, uh, he was not actively partaking in the attack, uh, but nonetheless, uh, was convicted of, uh, orchestrating it. The judge saying that he believed that he was an ongoing threat to democracy. And it it shows that there is an ongoing push here to ensure that there is accountability. And I think going back to those words that we heard from Liz Cheney when she was on that January 6th committee, she told uh, in her commencement speech, resolve to do what is right when you're alone, especially when you are afraid. And that is that that that's that message to Republicans. Look, you may be isolated, but there is a good thing that you can do here and it can have a positive outcome.
0: That's a perfect place to pause with you, Reggie. As always, I appreciate you taking some time for us. Thank you. Thank you. This next story makes me so frustrated. And it's, it's a story of harassment. And if you are familiar with my story, I've had online harassment be a massive issue over the last number of years. So this story is kind of triggering for those of us who have been through something like this and wanting online harassment to have stiffer, more swift and meaningful consequences, or even have deterrence in place that will make this stop. Because this is next level. It's one thing to come after me being on the radio and giving my opinions and people don't like it. But now we're going to talk about a kid's theater camp needing security. The Carousel Theater for Young People on Granville Island is literally holding fundraisers to pay for security for their kids' summer camp. And what's at the root of this? People think death threats are cool if there's drag involved because you're dressing up youth drag camps are being held by this theater company. The camps are, are, are an opportunity for young people to have theatrical self-expression. That's what this is about in a safe and nurturing space, a place where kids can be themselves. And no, that's not okay with the people that are, are literally harassing day and night in all forms for those at Carousel Theatre, I told you I was gonna get a little fired up about this. And I know that my next guest is also fired up about this. Uh, Samantha Falk, you likely have heard Samantha Falk, formerly of Global, yes, that's Samantha, uh, is a spokesperson for the uh, from the board at the Carousel Theatre, in fact. Uh, Sam, thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm glad to hear you're fired up about this, Jody. It is unbelievable to me that somebody Would feel the need to ever call, email, or harass online the Carousel Theater for Young People on Granville Island. Can you lay out what's actually happened over these recent weeks and months since this camp was announced?
2: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about Carousel, first of all. So, you know, Carousel Theater for Young People has been like a staple of Granville Island since 1976. They've been putting on you know, beautiful theatrical productions for young people for almost 50 years. I have taken both my boys to many plays at Carousel Theatre for young people. It is magical and creative and wonderful. And they put on all kinds of plays all year. And they have year-round drama classes. And they also have summer camps for for drama. And one of the summer camps they offer is a camp called Drag Camp for kids. And this has ignited uh, some controversy and uh the, it's always been part of the programming for the past couple of years it's been part of the programming and and carousel has been offering it and uh, then maxine bernier got wind of it and tweeted about it and uh fired up a whole bunch of people and since then which was just over six weeks ago the uh the team at carousel have received death threats constant emails they wake up in the morning their inbox is full with with hate Um, it's been constant. There's an online petition and I read some of these emails. They're really, really awful.
0: It's so sad that I can't even imagine how awful that must be for all of the good people behind the Carousel Theater for Young People, the people that go there and give of themselves and create art with kids and and make the world a better place by doing so, in my opinion, and they're... (laughs) They're on the receiving end of what is a political hit job, basically. Um, mm-hmm. What is being done, if anything, to protect these people?
2: Yeah, so, you know, right away, I mean, the the, the particularly terrible ones that included death threats and also phone calls every day to the carousel offices, uh, they've been handed over to Vancouver Police, uh, who now has a file on this. Uh, but carousel has had to go, go deeper than that. Clearly, they, they have... Retained a consultant who specializes in monitoring digitally this kind of harassment and keeping tracks on that, elevating things that need to be alerted to police, you know, making sure that there's no imminent threat to to Carousel Theatre staff or any of the children who attend productions and participate in drama school. and. Things like that, they, they need to lean on people like me to help them navigate this from a communication yeah. perspective. It's something they've never dealt with before. You know, I'd like to emphasize Carousel is a magical place, but it's a, it's a small nonprofit theater that has been operating on Granville Island for a really long time, and they're not used to this at all or ready to handle something like this. Yeah. Um, so, and then it also has come to, you know, putting extra security in place for the regular programming that they offer. Uh, they had a fundraiser on Saturday. There was security put in place for that. Um, so this is something they've never had to navigate or deal with or ever even considered ever dealing with.
0: Oh, it just gives me goosebumps. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that, that things must be monitored in that way. To look for the imminent threat i can relate Mm -hmm. to that feeling of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and then the need and and you never really do reclaim the feeling of safety once something like this has happened i had the opportunity to interview dr bonnie henry on the on the steel and vance show and and in in a commercial break she referenced because my harasser actually copied me in on a death threat to her and when I asked oh. her, like, when did the death threats first start for you? And she said, very first ever briefing. And that wow. stunned me the level. Like, where are we in life that it's scientists and children, <laughs> theater companies? It just feels, you know, you, you're a journalist, you longtime journalist. You and I have known each other for geez.
2: Let's not say it out loud, Judy. I know, <laughs> I know, I
0: know. Well, yeah, a long time. But in the industry of, could we have ever imagined a time where we're having a conversation where so, a place is beautiful and as meaningful and as ethical and lovely as the Carousel Theatre for Young People on Granville Island would be targeted in this way? What do we need no. to do to change this, Sam?
2: What do we that's do? that's a great question. I, I wish I had the answer. I wish people were decent enough not to do these things to other people. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of my fondest memories with my kids are going to see plays at Carousel Theatre for Young People and getting our little sticker that said, yeah. I saw a play today and my, my boys still remember all the plays we saw there. It was such a meaningful yeah. experience that brought joy to our lives and um, what do we need to do to stop this kind of hatred? I wish I I wish I had an answer. I I really do. Well, first and foremost,
0: uh, please send our very Best to all of the people who are shouldering um, this horrifying harassment that is being sent their way, and shame on the politicians who would target them in this way or rally their troops in the name of of creating uh, a great issue uh, politicization. You know the, the Connie smudges of the world who do drag queen story time and, and talk all about how, the beauty. Of, of the connection with young people who are looking for a place that reflects um, their, their comfort place, you know, the self-expression mm-hmm. and safe nurturing places and spaces. We need to have those, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there, there's that lesson in on the, in on all of this, isn't there? Especially in a Absolutely. theater.
2: Absolutely. And that's all this is about is just creating a safe place for people to be able to uh, explore creativity and be themselves without judgment. That's it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's not that. And if you don't like that, don't, don't go. go there. <laughs> exactly. What a concept. What a concept. I do feel better talking it through with you. I feel like I'm like, and rant, because it is just, <laughs> you know, if somebody's listening right now who's involved in this and feeling like it's okay to phone this theater for young people on the daily to just harass people, check yourself. Check yourself.
2: I, I couldn't right. emphasize that anymore, and I also have to say, you know, Carousel is firm. They believe in offering inclusive programming, and they will continue to do so and offer safe places for people to be able to express themselves artistically. So yeah. it's not going to dissuade them. But these are people at the other end of that line, and people at the receiving those emails, and it takes a toll. It's uh, it it's cruel, cool, um, and it's it's really really awful
0: let's turn this into something better. What can people do to help? How do we donate? How do we give so that the security, and can we have the security dressed in drag? I mean, how, <laughs> how can we, you know, like I love somebody <laughs> listening right now also wants to, to, to make a difference and make it better. So how do we support Carousel well, Theatre for Of course, people? funds
2: are always appreciated because I have to emphasize yeah. it is a nonprofit small theatre doing incredibly exceptional work and would like to continue yeah. doing so and putting the money into programming and plays and summer camps and year-round camps and the the things they're supposed to be doing and security and cybersecurity and all kinds of other things. So a donation is always appreciated. You can head to their website, and that would be very lovely. But, you know, I also think um, it's great to put a little positivity in the world however you can. If you want to tweet about this, if you want to put a little something on Instagram, if you want to go see a play, uh, if you just want to talk about this with your friends to create a little awareness and hopefully spread a little bit of acceptance and love in the world, I'm all for that.
0: It is time to talk about this week. May 28th to June 3rd is National Accessibility Week. Uh, today, BC Place Stadium, the Cauldron, and the sales at Canada Place will all be lit up red to promote Easter Seals and National Accessibility Week. To talk more about this, we're connecting with the Director of Client Services at Easter Seals BC and Yukon, Eric Evans, is on the line. Erica, thank you for joining us. Hi there, thanks so much for having me today. Very uh, excited to hear about it. First and foremost, love Easter seals. Think that you do such important work on so many levels. Uh, it's been an absolute joy to be a part of uh, some of your fundraisers and just knowing that giving back where it is, it is. um, Absolutely needed in such a precise way. It's hard to articulate how special Easter Seals is, but I, I congratulate you and all that you do. Um, and this particular uh, initiative with regard to National Accessibility Week, I think, is so important to raise awareness on where we've been, what what has worked, what we've done, and what still needs doing. Can you walk us through mm-hmm. a little bit about? Um, what what the messaging is here? What do you want people to learn?
6: Well, especially with Easter Seals, it's, it's to really raise awareness about the programs that we put on because even though there has been um, much improvement over the years, there's always still more work to be done. And that's really, not only is it a time to celebrate, but to reflect and recognize the the people and places that have been doing the work. And when we look at our programs, uh, we really want to take in where our individuals have been doing so well. And one of those things is really the educational programs that we've been putting on, um, and specifically the Compass Works program, because we still recognize that there are barriers to employment for folks with disabilities. And that's where a program like Compass Works, we really want to key in and focus in so that we can help support this population.
0: And, It's interesting, too. I mean, full disclosure, this show's lead producer, Ben Dooley, uh, happens to use a wheelchair. And watching Mm -hmm. Ben navigate his way around our radio station with doors that Mm -hmm. don't have the mechanism that open automatically Mm -hmm. by hitting it and double doors in a studio, in fact. And and you'd never really know how difficult it is because ben just does so much so effortlessly and yet wouldn't it be great for it not to be that laborious that there was that equal piece to this like we're still we're still talking about curb cuts in the city of vancouver which is just astounding but wanting to ensure that persons with disabilities have equal chance to participate in all aspects of society is really at the root of this is it not Absolutely.
6: And and it's interesting that you said that because often we think about accessibility. Absolutely. Um, Physical accessibility is definitely at the forefront. And um, even when I go through the city of Vancouver and even other parts of the city, you know, I I see great progress. I also see things that need to be done. And I hear from the community and um, I hear their feedback and things like that. And definitely with Easter Seals, that's where we're trying to really make that voice and advocate for those changes. um, And certainly to through our programming and uh, we're also trying to reflect
0: those changes as well. Right. And Compass Works, you mentioned Compass Works. For someone who's never heard that term, can you give, give a Coles notes of, of what that is?
6: Certainly, yes. Yeah. So Compass Works, uh, we just started it this year, actually, um, early February, and it's a 22-week hospitality employment uh, training program and Easter Seals um, off Oak Street here is a hotel upstairs because part of our mandate is we also offer um, medical uh, stay for folks, families uh, traveling all over the province. And so we've been using our space as a live training ground for participants that come to our program. And we actually today uh, marks the second cohort's uh, first day of training and so we um, While we have just uh, moved with our first class and they're going to be completing their external work placements, our second group will be starting uh, their training at the house. And what's particularly interesting about this program is that we really rely on our partnerships. Um, Two of our partnerships that we have right now are with places like the Fairmont Hotel and Care Corp. uh, Senior Services. And so really it's giving a chance for our individuals to be able to learn the skills they learn at the house here um, and get real life experience with employers outside so they can add that to their resume and have a, um, a real equal chance, uh, competitive edge to, to applying for, for jobs in the hospitality field.
0: Let's talk about those participants, if you don't Thanks. mind. Um, it, what are some of the challenges that are at play here and in, 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 in this training to, to level the playing field? frankly, to make it equal and inclusive and 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 actually uh, give great opportunity to everyone.
6: Absolutely. Well, certainly with the people that come into our program, they're coming from all different walks of life. And some of the participants we see um, either have just graduated from high school or maybe uh, they're a little older in their in their life their career where they're needing that change or their disability has... Um, made it for them where they need to look at other avenues of of work. And so it's it's hard enough to um, find a job, uh, especially for this population, but also looking into a new career where maybe you don't have that experience. And so really this is that chance for them to get that experience under their belt so that they can actually go to places and say, hey, I've been – you know, getting work experience at Easter Seals Hotel and Fairmont Hotel, for example, and I've got 22 weeks under my belt. And um, that way, they can they can get into those entry level positions. And um, I think that's first and foremost is just having trying to get into work when you don't have that experience that that's needed, and really also the support as well. Um, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of programs that are this. Um, uh, size of um, small size and really that hands-on with enough support so that they can get through um, not only the workshops that we offer too, but just the, the day-to-day tasks and activities so that they really get a full understanding. And they have mentors there as well too, our, our staff, that job shadow. Um, so they really understand what it means to work in, in this industry.
0: Getting that experience so that you can then get the job having had some experience i mean this is exactly just makes Every type of sense, Erica. We're with Erica Evans, the Director of Client Services at Easter Seals BC in Yukon. And we're talking about Compass Works. This is national accessibility week. I love the way you've written accessibility. Um, <laughs> because it's all about access and ability. And we're talking about with Easter Seals, we're talking about cognitive and physical disabilities. And and some mm-hmm. of the participants might have Down syndrome or anxiety disorders or beyond the spectrum or developmental challenges, among other things, but still like such incredible contributors to society and 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 brilliant like remarkable minds and and abilities and just need that opportunity i love the fact that that fairmont sorry it's care corp and fairmont hotels i'm not familiar with care corp can you give me a little about them
6: Yes, absolutely. So basically um, it's the senior services. so um, different senior homes within British Columbia are right. often under this one organization. So um, there's different locations that they've um, gladly taken upon a participants that are doing those external work experiences with them.
0: Well, Erica, this is just fantastic. How can people find out more information, get involved or try and support uh, Easter Seals in any way they might be able to?
6: Great question. we will definitely, I'd say first and foremost, um, heading over to our website, so eastersealsbcy.ca. We're always looking for volunteers. That's a great um, step in that direction. Um, And specifically for Compass Works, um, if you're an employer that is interested in maybe taking on any one of our participants, um, head on over to our website and see the link for Compass Work. So we'd love to have a chat. Um, There's also our events that we put on throughout the year. Uh, We have Drop Zone, which is one of our big events happening soon. And um, that's a great way to get involved and it helps um, fund our programs as well.
0: I love the drop zone. It scares the bejesus out of me, but that's when people basically dress up like superheroes and rappel off a building, all in the name of raising money for Easter Seals. Uh, Erica, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for doing this.
6: Thank you so much.